listening to the Broken Mirrors podcast, providing a unique set of views in the larger foreign policy and intelligence and security milieu. I'm Isabel Duivestein, Special Chair in Strategic Studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. This episode, Strategic Surprise, Intelligence and Terrorism, Developing a Tolerance for Disaster. And now, here are the hosts of Broken Mirrors, Mark and Tom. Legends of predictions are common throughout the whole household of man. Gods speak, spirits speak, computers speak, oracular ambiguity or statistical probability provides loopholes, and discrepancies are expunged by faith. Welcome to Broken Mirrors, the Canadian affiliate of War on the Rocks. In keeping with War on the Rocks tradition, Tom and I are sitting down with a good bottle of dry red. This month's podcast is the first of two realist hard looks at the concept and reality of strategic intelligence. Ursula Le Guin's comments are a particularly apt reading of how the actual process of strategic intelligence operates within any society. Humans have an inbuilt need and desire for predictability, and we, as a species, are forever inventing ways to achieve it. The current incarnation of this need is nowhere near as glamorous as the Oracle of Delphi, but it does bear an intriguing resemblance to the complex astrological systems developed by the Babylonians. I am, of course, speaking about organizations involved in our current high-tech form of divination, strategic intelligence. Rather than using any of the traditional zodiacal signs, or even traditionally popular deities such as Apollo, our current techno-shamans center their rituals around the trinity of big data, big companies, and big government. Well, Mark, in in fairness to the intelligence agencies, we also have to consider one other constant that shows up throughout history. Rulers consult their oracles about things they specifically want to do and often disregard warnings that they didn't want to hear. It probably wasn't much fun for many of the old Hebrew prophets, and certainly Stalin's intelligence people probably felt the same way just before he had them shot. Good point, Tom. One of the things that rarely makes it into analyses of current failures in strategic intelligence is the governing and controlling factor of the politicians. This could be because a leader refuses to hear good intelligence. Stalin is a good example of that just before World War II. Or it could be because the leader's wishes keep changing all the time, raising constantly new areas for their intelligence organizations to focus on and thereby causing a massive use of resources. Not only that, But there's an increasing number of countries in the world, and we have a series of non-state actors who can also have effect on major issues. Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah come to mind quickly, but many others exist as well. Not only that, most countries have lost a significant amount of control over their own economies. Foreign exchange traders, derivative markets, and currency devaluation come to mind. Most people in the intelligence community have little to no understanding of how the U.S. Fed policy of quantitative easing has had the effect of shipping both debt and inflation overseas to other countries. These countries are increasingly angry about this policy and its effects. Among other things, food prices and stability are being affected in their own backyards. To say things are a bit complex at the moment is somewhat of an understatement. This brings us back to the same point, however. We spend billions on intelligence, and the political leaders who approve this spending are expecting something in return. In terms of strategic intelligence, this means understanding and warning. In short, 
Leaders want a sense of predictability in future events. Where are we on all of that? Well, Tom, prior to 9-11, there had been a series of commissions and inquiries to examine the causes of strategic surprise and the perceived intelligence failures that went hand in hand. Almost all of the commissions in the USA and in other countries such as Canada, the UK, India, and Israel all came to the same conclusion. The causes for all the problems are found with what we would call today silos and mindsets. After 9-11, there was yet another commission that came to basically exactly the same conclusion. The information was there to prevent or predict the attack, but it was not shared due to silos or ignored due to mindsets. You're right, Mark. The list of commissions is indeed impressive. A few examples are the Roberts Commission, the Hoover Commission, and then we have Taylor, Schlesinger, Aspen Brown, Pike, Church, Gilmore, McDonald, Gates, Bremer, Hart Rudman, the 9-11 Commission, the Agronat Commission, the Jeremiah Commission, the Herrera Commission, the Hutner Inquiry, and the Butler Committee. On top of all that, we've had Royal Commissions of Inquiry in other countries, such as the Air India Commission in Canada, a massive undertaking. Again, they all came up with basically the same conclusions that the problems are silos and mindsets. 9-11 was a strategic surprise in the classic sense, meaning that pretty much everyone thought that Al-Qaeda were a bunch of clowns who could never hit the homeland. The responses to the newly revitalized Al-Qaeda threat varied by country afterwards. In the United States, the response was highly ritualized. First, build yet another layer of bureaucracy, known nowadays as the Department of Homeland Security. And second, immediately start a ritual of atonement, also known as the 9-11 Commission. If Clausewitz was right about the causes and effects of friction, then adding more parts to the bureaucratic machine would only decrease efficiency. But, as with all culturally required rituals, it was absolutely necessary that the government be seen to be doing something. In Canada, there was a similar response with a new government ministry known as Public Safety. This was created in order to match the Department of Homeland Security. Public safety, however, lacks budgetary authority or executive control over the agencies it's designed to coordinate, and it has a much weaker profile than that of the DHS. In the United Kingdom, perhaps born out of longer experience, no new agency was created, although power and budgetary shifts were obvious. All told, it is unlikely that the Five Eye countries or the Western states are in any better shape now to prevent strategic surprise than they were in the year 2000. So let's talk about silos and other organizational psychoses. Silos remain well entrenched along with specific locked mindsets. Biases and retrospective coherence are also all too common. So why call these psychoses? Well, one of the best rule of thumb definitions of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again when it always fails. We know it doesn't work, but we do it anyway. The question that should logically follow is why do we do it? This brings us back to one of the core points about divination systems of all type. The system can only react to the requests it is given, but at the same time, the system cannot alienate the people making the requests, otherwise all faith in the system can be undermined. This faith in the system when it fails spectacularly can only be restored through a public auto de fe, a sort of religious ceremony of supplication. The current version of this ceremony is what we would call a commission or an inquiry. While these public spectacles may restore faith in the divination system, they really don't seem to improve the system. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the same results time after time. 
Indeed, when a divination system fails us and we need a better one to deal with new complexity, we should really start thinking about how we react to these failures since they are, in many ways, inevitable. Longtime intelligence scholar and writer Richard Betts may have hit the nail on the head when he argues that the best way to deal with intelligence failures is to develop a tolerance for disaster. But to be fair, the business of preventing strategic surprise in any arena such as terrorism, the economy, or international conflict is an increasingly difficult task. The intelligence community is expected to be able to comment and predict on events and trends as they relate to cyber issues, climate change, food and water security, and the effects of ungoverned spaces. All told, there are less major international wars, but more intrastate conflict and non-state actors causing trouble. And the smaller conflicts require a greater degree of granularity of knowledge in order to make useful judgments. This is tough stuff, and Syria, perhaps, is maybe just the latest, best example of how tough this can really be. Well, in addition to all of that, there are three problems which are emerging or getting more difficult to handle. Point one. There is no coherent core narrative about how the international system is organized. We talk about post-Cold War, post-9-11, and post-2008 economic crisis, but no one seems to be able to describe the current period effectively. Lacking a coherent core narrative, it is hard to find a basis for organizing and understanding the current realities. If nothing else, the Soviets gave us a framework and it had some predictability to it. Point two. And consistent with the lack of a core narrative, a variety of ideologies are spinning up and taking more space in the arena of public discussion. This is problematic as those who have an ideology already believe that they have all the answers. When you have an ideology, a faith, you don't need to ask questions or find new information. In fact, Mark Twain captures this problem beautifully when he wrote, Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Scary stuff, that, especially when you look at complex issues such as the economy, Iran, Syria, or the rising price of chocolate. Chocolate is important. It's what stops wars, and it's what causes wars. Point three. Democratic politicians are famous, or perhaps infamous, for their short-term views of the world. However, this problem seems to have increased lately due to an entire social and political culture of short-term focus and awareness. Twitter, Facebook, and the 24-hour news cycle creates a population that has a short attention span. For better or for worse, the politicians have to react to this and they focus more on today's immediate issues rather than the long-term stability and health of their country. As well, the current political class appears to have a limited connection to blood and soil issues and they have little skin in the game. Worse still, those institutions of government that are or were charged with longer-term thinking are suffering from partisanship and atrophy. One needs to look no further than the Canadian Senate or the U.S. Senate for examples of this kind of problems. When you think about it, long-term thinking and skin in the game are both critical to dealing with the so-called war on terror. The West needs, but seems to be lacking, both a strong strategic narrative and critical responses to the AQ core narrative and propaganda. In fact, it is arguable that we are not even in the same battle space as they are, so defeating them or prevailing in the face of their message will be tough. Broken Mirrors As you always like to say, Tom, we're heavily into the tactical and operational battle space in confronting Al-Qaeda and other similar groups. 
Kinetic operations are common, frequently necessary, and we're pretty damn good at it. At the same time, legitimate arrests and court actions have been quite effective, with the obvious exception of the Cuban all-inclusive resort at Gitmo. At the operational level, we're facing mixed results, although we are frequently effective. However, in the strategic battle space, we are fundamentally falling free. There is no core narrative about where we are going, and there is no specific counter-narrative about how we intend to handle Al-Qaeda, ungoverned spaces, or transnational political violence in general. In many ways, Isabel Davistein offers the most succinct and cutting critique of our Western understanding of strategy. We were lucky enough to have her give us a short rundown of that critique from her home in the Netherlands. Strategy is about the exercise of power. How do you ensure that your opponent does what you want him or her to do, and which he or she is not inclined to do initially? Strategy is about the use of available resources to ensure that your opponent changes course. Strategic thinking always has something speculative. How will an opponent react to your actions? And what reactions will you formulate yourself? What is the problem with strategy? The issue is that we are suffering from collective strategic illiteracy. We have forgotten how to think strategically. We have forgotten how to formulate viable political objectives, which can serve as a basis for making realistic plans. Especially in the last 20 years, strategic illiteracy has increased. Recent conflicts show that the development of a strategic vision for the future of Afghanistan, Libya and Mali is missing. We focus particularly on the disruption of the enemy through, for example, drone attacks in the Afghan-Pakistan border region, Yemen and Somalia, the cutting off of irregular groups aiming to occupy urban areas in the interior of Mali. I would have to say that at present we cannot but come to the conclusion that we are quite good at tactical disruption of our enemy instead of generating strategic effect. A political vision of what should happen next continues to be absent. Over on their side, Al-Qaeda and their associates are not doing quite so well at the tactical level. They get defeated in most physical confrontations and they've developed an impressive list of casualties. They can still carry out the odd, short-term, high-impact event on occasion, such as Westgate Mall, but they're not capable of a sustained campaign at the tactical level. At the operational level, they run hearts and minds campaigns, but the reality is they're killing more Muslims than anyone else, and the heart of their narrative, takfirism, is still seen as counterintuitive by most in the Muslim world. At the strategic level, their message is often mixed, as can be seen in Zawahiri's most recent Guidance on Jihad that came out in September 2013. Al-Qaeda lacks any sort of theory or direction on how to coordinate a global insurgency, drawing, instead, on half-understood golden age stories of the initial rise and spread of Islam. Unfortunately for them, but fortunately for us, the playbook that worked against the Byzantine Empire is, to be nice, woefully out of date, and most of the Ocaran thinking on revolutions has been limited to within nation-states. However, Al-Qaeda does have one overwhelming advantage in their campaign. They are operating almost unopposed in the strategic battle space. So even if they frequently mix their message or if they are confused, they still come out on top. 
Thus, for example, Al-Qaeda accepts a definition of media and symbol system regardless of geographic boundaries as the primary battle space, while coalition forces use the concept of bounded geography as the primary battle space. This is a classic example of an asymmetric conflict. It is asymmetric because the players are using different battle spaces and different rules. It's almost as though we're playing indoor ice hockey and they're playing outdoor soccer at the World Cup level. One of the central questions coming out of this observation has to be how do we find out what game both they and we are actually playing? And this gets us right back to the same old story that Sun Tzu used to hammer all the time. In order to achieve victory or prevail in the face of a terrorist campaign, you must know both your enemy and yourself. If you do not, you exist in a state of peril. One of the more interesting ways of figuring out what game and what rules your opponent is playing by is to look at his tactical choices and see what type of pattern they follow. We're going to discuss this idea more closely with our guest, Stephen Strang, who is the Director of Research and Innovation, Strategic Policy and External Relations for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Steve and I also did our master's degrees together, and he has worked extensively on how terrorists use their attacks as a form of communications. Steve has looked at terrorism using a very interesting lens, that of real conflict and non-real conflict. He has also examined the idea of terrorism as a form of performance art, which you carry out when you cannot engage in real conflict, such as an insurrectionary war. In effect, by treating the tactics as performance art, you can derive the governing narrative of your opponent, thereby figuring out what game they are playing. In short, these ideas can get us to where we are not, the strategic battle space and the counter-narrative. And now here's our discussion with Steve. You can identify a group of individuals or a compound or a physical point in space where they have yes. strength. We're quite good at laying waste to that or arresting them or dispersing them or whatever. But if we move into the battle of the non-real space, mm -hmm. kinetics aren't really much help anymore. Uh, you actually we have deal to with have the, knowledge, you have to actually have to think, etc., etc. When you're dealing with, with the conflict between ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of, the, one of the things to bear in mind is as far as the, the, the terrorists are concerned, by and large, they believe we have a massive propaganda machine pushing out our ideology. Uh, we may not think we have one because it's not structured, it's not run from the you know, National Film Board anymore. It's not, uh, right, it's not a central thing. It's something that is a byproduct of our culture. But these notions around democracy, if you look at what's going on in Egypt and elsewhere, are extraordinarily powerful ideas. And in many places, most places, much more powerful than Al-Qaeda's ideas. Our notions of multicultural toler tolerance are extraordinarily powerful ideas. And we actually promote those fairly well just through the way we live. And that's something that they very much, when you're dealing with many terrorist groups, specifically want to destroy because they want to do is they want to have a stable conflict between polarized groups. They don't want to have the opportunities for a conversation. They don't want to have the opportunities for people to coexist because that would prove them wrong. The idea so that, I think that, that you know, we need to be careful about stating that they've got the strategic high ground in terms of the war of ideas because they think they're, they're fighting, and I'm generalizing broadly here because there are many terrorisms, right? But by and large, 
the reason that they're engaged in terrorism is because they think they're losing. But yes, if you're strong, if you were powerful, you don't have to resort to that kind of activity. You'd have your guerrilla warfare, you would have your election campaign, you would have whichever. Also, just to sort of drive that thought home, it's been argued, a bit humorously, but maybe a bit true, that the TV program Dallas being beamed into the Soviet Union probably did more damage to the Soviets than any fleet of submarines ever did. Oh, and that's being a bit loose with the uh, bit loose with the work. But the idea is correct that I think you're right. We do have a a certain strategic message we send out inadvertently or mm -hmm. without even thinking about it through Jack Bauer's 24-hour TV program there where we torture terrorists and that's how we win mm -hmm. the war. Hollywood, kind of is, Hollywood is a very impressive propaganda machine. Yes. The question being, are we actually thinking this, organizing it, are we using it in any sort of thought-driven way should to prevail be, in the face should of... Should we be thinking about it and organizing it? Yes, we should be making use of it. Or do we just... Yes, we should be making use of it. Uh, how? <laughs> I'm not just thinking Hollywood here. I'm thinking like at a strategic level, have we thought through how to develop a counter-narrative, how to engage these folks mm -hmm. in a certain way in order to undercut guys like Zawahiri and say, look, your, your principle of takfirism is un-Islamic, if mm -hmm. nothing else. Uh, why are we not engaging these folks at that level sort of an issue? Have we thought that problem through? Certainly, we, we, we spread lots of energy mm -hmm. uh, through films, through movies, through uh, God Save Us All, Miley Cyrus, I'm sure sends a message out to the rest of the world. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, but it sends a message. Um, come here. Well, listen, we'll <laughs> yeah. <Yeah>. Um, <clears throat> hey, our parties are more fun than your parties, but I don't know. Um, that can be a very powerful message. Yeah. Uh, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a terrorist interview was something about this guy is... Think about who joins terrorist groups. Yeah. Young men, yes. Uh -huh. But I remember this, like, death to America, death to the West, death to imperialism, whatever. And then the guy in the next press is asked, what do you want to do? I want to move to uh, Lansing, Michigan or something because my brother's a dentist there. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, there's two parts of this narrative, isn't there? <laughs> yes, there are. But the question being... And, and we have to be careful about not taking any of it too literally. Yes. The question being... At the tactical level, we organize. At the operational level, we organize and we operationalize. Mm -hmm. At the strategic level, have we even tried to figure out what strengths we have, how to use them in order to prevail in the face of this? Or are mm -hmm. we just stumbling through? Yeah. And my sort of sense is at this point, having watched it for 20 years now, since the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, is we are stumbling through not thinking this through in any serious strategic level kind of thing. We have a series of advantages, we're not using them. I think that we need to be careful about that because it isn't just for us that tactics are easier than strategy. When you think of the problems that we might have coordinating amongst allies, coordinating amongst our own government agencies in terms of strategic direction, um, but we can use the phone. We can send each other emails. We can hold meetings freely. We can talk to each other quite a lot. Think about what it's like trying to develop and enforce a strategic direction covertly. But play it out for a second. Mm -hmm. That very covertness actually feeds into a narrative of us versus them, number one. Yes. So it constructs the capability of a more motivating narrative. I have a secret I will let you in on it. Certainly. Um, and, and the motivational power of, of secrecy 
when you're dealing with these groups is, is quite important. Uh, but there's a downside to it as well, right? Because when you've got a small covert group, whether it's Navalia, whether it's a provisional IRA, whether it's Al-Qaeda, you know, pick your terrorist group from the last 130, 150 years, uh, one of the things you get is you get people who want to be part of it because they want to be part of that group. You get people, however, once you're in that group, all of those small group dynamics start to get amplified because there is a real threat. And so you get, uh, there's a wonderful description of what was going on with the West German terrorists in the 1970s, 1980s. The Batter-Meinhof? Yeah, Batter-Meinhofs, that, the Rotomi fraction. Uh, and not just them, but, but primarily them, because they were the worst offenders for this, which was that um, because of their covertness, they only really spoke to each other. They only discuss these ideas with each other. And in any small group dynamic, you get people kind of spinning off, right, because they reinforce each other. But uh, there was an author who, who said about it that they basically they were working in an atmosphere of intellectual incest, mm-hmm. right? There was intellectually incestuous. Now, the problem with intellectual incest is it breeds defective ideas. Like most forms of incest, yes. Exactly. So, so to some extent, that becomes self-regulating because they become so distant in the way they think, in a way they understand things from the population, they claim to be the, you know, the elite of, the, from the population they claim to be presenting, they actually lose touch. So it is a real problem for them. Well, let's take an interesting Canadian example, because this one's not talked about that much, mm-hmm. which is the FLQ. Yeah. And when the FLQ kidnapped Cross, when they were doing the you know little bombings all over the place, if you looked at their popularity ratings in Quebec, they were running about 70, 75 percent. Mm-hmm. They were actually quite high mm. until the publication of their manifesto, uh-huh. the breach of the secrecy wall. And the vast majority of the seniorial class, which controls the a lot of the elite institutions, is very nationalistic mm-hmm. in the sense of Quebec nationalism, looked at it and went, this is illiterate. <laughs> This is idiotic. We would never, ever, ever want to be part of this. We don't want to be associated with it. So as a result, their support ratings plummeted down to, I think it was about 12 or 15% within the space of one week after they were published. Mm-hmm. So at, at the level of strategy, yeah. the federal strategy under Trudeau saying, yes, let them publish it. Mm-hmm. Let's see what they're actually saying rather than the I have a secret. <laughs> Not let not just let them publish it let's broadcast it let's broadcast uh, let yeah. everybody know and what they the really want yeah. exactly now the interesting question here is if we were to do it with the IRA from the 1960s 70s campaigns yes. if that was published in Northern Ireland or Al-Qaeda Zawahiri stuff if that came out mm-hmm. in this is the interpretation that he is applying this is what is going through this is the implication of it. Yeah. Now, an interesting, an interesting look at that with the IRA as an example is they did indeed publish uh, with Anne Foverlock. They had a newspaper which had, you know, editorial cartoons and movie reviews and news articles all from their point of view, including, you know, an annual publication of their list of martyrs, of course, mm-hmm. uh, timed for Easter, of course, uh, and... 
their political viewpoints were very clear in it. However, when they sent uh, personnel to the United States on fundraising trips, right? not that they particularly needed American money, but they needed the political support for symbolic reasons. When they sent people there, they were very, very clear about what they were allowed to talk about. They were allowed to talk about their traditional conflict with the crown. They were allowed to talk about um, basically Irish culture, you know, as the sort of 19th century romantic tradition that gave us the, the Easter Rising, right, understood it. They were not under any circumstances to talk about what the provisional IRA's political view of a united Ireland was because the Provisional IRA was a socialist national liberation movement. And they, they Typical knew... Typical of its day throughout it was the a, world, yeah. Yeah, that was actually one of the very interesting things around that conflict, which I think has some lessons for us, is that uh, typical for its day, the Provisional IRA day was, it was a, a left-wing national liberation movement like so many that we saw in the 1960s. The loyalist side was more akin to the Ku Klux Klan than anything else. They were not a revolutionary right-wing group. They were a reactionary right-wing movement wanting to preserve something, uh, to preserve something which may never have existed, but still, that was their notion, right? The Provisional IRA wanted to create something new. They wanted to preserve a past. Uh, a revisionist so, or a revitalist or what we might now call a Salafist group. Yeah. In a way, yes. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about them is one of their most defining qualities was actually their inarticulacy. Right? And so when you look at uh, things published from uh, within the sides of the Irish conflict, I mean, we could all probably sit here and name three good Irish Republican bands. You know, name one good unionist band. None. Create these accidental guerrillas. You create. You use the collateral damage yeah. in a narrative form to prove the existence mm -hmm. of your actual narrative. Uh, that's where we start getting into the the, the fundamental strategic judo of terrorism, mm -hmm. which is to coerce or trick the government into overreacting or underreacting. Mm -hmm. And whichever way it goes, it still is useful for them. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, if you can trick the government into overreacting then, and you're claiming that you're oppressed, well, that helps to prove your point. Uh, so that's, that's obviously a risk. If you can trick the government or if the government falls into the trap of underreacting, they lose support from the, within their own population because the public fear of crime is a legitimate factor, right, when you're dealing with a domestic situation. That's a very important factor. Whether or not it has a close correlation to the actual level of crime and the actual threat of crime aside, but the public perception of crime is about the public faith in the justice system and public faith right, in, in government. So that's something that, that's a balance, which gets us back into Clausewitz again, mm -hmm. right? Because when we think about what Clausewitz is saying about, about centers of gravity, and uh, it's important to bear in mind that, that any large-scale society actually has multiple centers of gravity. The ability to make rational decisions that are supported by your population is one of the, one of the balancing points right, for any society. And if the opponent can set you off balance there, right, or if 
you accidentally trip and go off balance there, then you start to fail. And that's what you see with terrorist groups who go over their optimum level of violence, the level of violence that's allowed to them within their own ideology, within their own operating culture, is they start to lose support from their own side. Because the Egyptian Islamic group uh, with their attacks, mm -hmm. at a certain point, even they themselves stood up and said, oops, that was too much, too far, and we swear off violence. They mm -hmm. recognized their own mistake, as opposed to Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which went down an entirely different route. But uh, there was yeah, a group that yeah. actually failure realized. is an option. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me go in a slightly different direction here for a second. One of the problems in dealing with a terrorist group, if you're the government or you're in opposition mm -hmm. to a terrorist group at whatever level, is terrorists operate frequently on a grievance narrative, be it historical, be it linguistic, be it skin color, be it whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the narrative has some validity because some people have been oppressed or destroyed yeah. or whatever. And then sometimes the grievance is more one of perception than reality. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the grievance narrative is there. One of the issues I see with Al-Qaeda uh, and currently was sort of a Western at attempt to deal with it is you're not allowed to publicly, certainly not in America and certainly not in Canada, stand up and say, wow, what are these guys angry about? Or what are they What are they going on about? Because we're always told, oh, the terrorists hate us because they hate our freedom, which of course is the exact opposite of reality. Um, we're also told that, well, you know, all terrorists are crazy, they're insane, uh, they're drug addicted, they're, you know, you get the whole litany of excuses and they're all cowardly murderers. Well, the problem of course is that most of them aren't insane. Most of them are, in fact, quite sane. They're quite rational. Yes. They're goal-seeking. Yes. Uh, but yet, nonetheless, we set up this use of terminology mm -hmm. to somehow try and delegitimate them and, or to delegitimize their discussions and say, oh, well, they're insane anyway, so you can't talk to them. So I would say by use of terminology, you're also isolating yourself from the problem, which may be convenient for the government because then you don't have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you actually want to prevail in the face of a terrorist group or a terrorist movement, you actually have to understand your opponent and you have to be willing to engage them. Yes. So is our use of terminology sometimes just an excuse to not deal with the problem? In other words, we'll fight them at the tactical and the operational level, but we won't actually discuss in our society what the grievance is, because that would mean getting into the actual strategic level. Uh, yeah. Is that just a convenient way of escaping the problem? Uh. Not sure. Uh, again, it's it's you know what what you're getting at is is not a simple thing. Uh, one of the things that's going on is that when we're dealing with with terrorism, uh, we're actually dealing with multiple things. Right? There's no such thing as terrorism. Like yes, there's no whole, one yep. terrorism. There are, you know, depending on your point of view, perhaps as many terrorisms as there are terrorist groups. There may even be as many terrorisms as there are terrorists, depending on how cohesive some of those groups are. Or maybe more. But what you're looking at is you're looking at a range of behavior that at one end is basically a hate crime, and at the other end is basically a guerrilla warfare. Right? And you've got this, this mess of everything in between being described as terrorism. And you get terrorist groups who are groups who use primarily terrorism in order to try to push forward their goals. Right, or to express their objections. But you also get, of course, groups who use terrorist tactics but are not actually terrorists. You get, you know, guerrilla armies. You have rural insurgents who use terrorism as part of their engagement with the enemy. One of a series of weapons at their disposal. Exactly. 
not their not their sole target. Uh, you have terrorist groups who have a political wing, however nominally arm's length it may or may not be. You have terrorist groups who operate without a political wing, right? You've got a tremendous amount of variety, variety there. You have terrorist groups who claim responsibility for their actions in long, usually extraordinarily turgid claims of responsibility, you know, going back to your discussion of the FLQ, or if you've ever had the misfortune of sitting down and reading a, a rote army fraction uh, claim of responsibility. Exactly. Here's an interesting thought. If terrorism, as you suggest, is a form of theater, uh, yes. it's a form of performance art, yeah. uh, which I agree with. In a lot of cases, you're trying to get a message across. You're not strong enough to engage in an actual real conflict. Yes. So you find other means of getting your message across. And violence, uh, especially in our society today, is quite often a, a useful way of getting messages across. It does get people's attention. It does indeed. Now, flip this around and go the other direction. What about trials? Mm -hmm. uh, with the Anders Breivik trial in Norway, there was huge public discussion, and I participated in this by writing editorials in Norwegian newspapers, and people saying, on one hand, this man should be dragged into court, all his writing should be literally pinned to a wall, and we can see what this guy is really all about to see what a bad, evil guy this really is. The counter-argument to that was, for heaven's sakes, don't give this publicity, don't feed this man oxygen, don't help his fire burn. Mm -hmm. uh, a public trial will do nothing but put this man further up the scale. And I think your argument is probably correct that the people who were going to get the message got it anyway. And the public as a whole should actually see what this guy's writing. And matter of fact, I would argue it should be, you know, you should be forced to read it in Norwegian high school. Probably a form of torture, but there it is. Um, in much the way Mein Kampf and the FLQ uh, writings should be forced reading in high school mm. to see what these characters are really all about. But are trials a form of theater uh, and should we have highly public trials where the entire public can watch the thing live on TV and then go to the internet to download the actual documents mm -hmm. uh, or are we better off to do the secret trial thing like they want to do with the uh, well a number of people have advocated that secret trials are better uh, well so if terrorism is political theater is a trial political theater and is it an effective anecdote I would argue that trials well, let's be very clear that when we're talking about theater here, we're not talking about make-believe. We're talking about the theatrical representation of very real events. Yes. So when we talk about terrorism as theater, we're talking about the way that they use real events uh, in order to send a message. We're talking about the way that they use the deaths of actual people, the way that they use the impact of those deaths on those people's parents and those people's children, on those people's friends. They're using that to amplify the message. Right. So, so when we talk about theater, it's not to make light of what they're doing. It's not to minimize what they're doing. In many ways, it makes what they're doing even more horrible. That they're trying to send a message, and, they want, and they're writing the message in the corpses yes, exactly. of real people. So it's about, when we talk about theater in that way, we're talking about uh, the ritualization of behavior and the structuring of behavior so that observers can pick it up as a more concrete message. There's not just random behavior, right? It's structured behavior. Uh, the court process in Western democracies, certainly in, in you know, in the, in the uh, if you will, the British traditional common law that we participate in, those are half, you know, those are our public places so that the public can see justice being done. It's the reason why when, you know, you or I have testified in court, people get to sit in the audience. Yeah, it, it's a very ritualized, very it formalized. It is very strictly ritualized 
process. You have, um, in many ways, parallels to religious structures where you have the bar across the courtroom beyond which only officials and participants in the ritual may pass. Right. Yeah, it's an altar almost. It's, when it's, you first it's see a, a courtroom, it looks a lot it, like an it altar. It looks yeah. a lot like an altar rail, yes. Yeah. And that was the first thing that popped into my mind when I first time I walked into a courtroom. The So, you know, there's that sense of it being public, which goes right back to um, sort of Anglo-Germanic tribal law from the time of Beowulf. Falkland. Right, is that the the members of the society need to see this. They need to be able to see this. And it is about... Uh, the open discussion and debate around what actually happened. Uh, so public trials can be very powerful things. Uh, now, what goes on in a trial is too important to adjust it for theatrical power, I would suggest. That goes, what goes on in a trial is about an attempt to discover the truth of an event. And that truth needs to be publicly available. The media may or may not choose to cover it, uh, but it needs to be publicly available because that's what's really important there. The, but it, you but don't want to go down the road of doing something that looks like a show trial. Yeah. But you it, don't want to go because that is propaganda for the other side. Yes, if you get into like Guantanamo or Soviet-style show trials, then you're probably defeating your own message. But using your own terms of what theater is, mm -hmm. as you describe terrorists yes. using this theater, and not in a, like you say, not in a way to make light of it, but it is not a trial, the same sort of thing, but going in the other direction. We're going to hold this guy up in front of the public. Yes. We're going to examine the dead burnt bodies, the blown up cars, the, the wounded yes. people, whatever, show the pain that this man has caused, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And this is a spectacle the public can watch via TV or right in the courtroom or by reading reports. Mm -hmm. And that message gets back to the public saying, ooh, bad, we don't like this, we don't accept this. And it gets out to this guy's friends and colleagues. It says, A, this form of behavior is held by us in general to be unacceptable. Yes. And oh yeah, by the way, if we catch you doing it anyway, this is what's going to happen to you. Yes. Uh, and a vital part of that in terms of the message that we would want to send is that we're fair and we're honest, which is why the role of the defense in these trials is so important, right? Okay, I need to say something here. Yes. Two points. First point, Tom, you used the word spectacle. And I have a suspicion that you were thinking a combination of bread and circuses, a la Rome, and Soviet show trials on spectacle stuff. Spectacles in and of themselves are useless as ritual constructs. What our trial system has derived from is a ritual construct where everybody in the community has the right to some form of input and some form of following what is going through there. So it is a group community ritual rather than a high priest conducts, everybody else just passively watches. And that's the strength of our trial system versus a star court chamber system. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a question of... of uh, uh, you know, when you're comparing, say, a trial to a, to a terrorist attack, one of the interesting things is that what you have in either event, as in any other public event that people are interested in, is you have you have actors, um, you have an audience. In a terrorist attack, 
it has a triangular structure. It has attackers. It has victims who are the instrumental audience, right? Uh, which include, you know, part of the instrumental audience. And then you have the outside audience. So the instrumental audience then are the victims and they're the, the witnesses. And you have to have that triangular, triangular structure. That's one of the reasons why, for example, the hunger strikes were not terrorism, is because the victim and the perpetrator were the same man. Right. Uh, now, in, in a trial, you've actually, it's a little more complex because you have the judge and jury who are given the right to make decisions about based on the information in front of them. You have the prosecution, you have the defense, which includes uh, the accused, and then you've got the public, right, of whom the jury is representative. So it's a much more complicated structure. Um, the the message, you know, that we send with that, when you look at at um, you know how 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 we deal with, with, with terrorist communication, how we deal with terrorist groups. Uh, the message we have to send with that is one of, of truth. And I think that's, that's, that's got to be the core of it, uh, which demonstrates that no, we're not dishonest oppressors. No, this is not propaganda, right? Everything that happened can come out here. We're willing to literally open the books, and you can read every page that's in the book with nothing being hidden. Yeah, it's sort of from an open trial. That's from the an open that comes from an open out, trial, yeah. and that's the ideal form. There are, of course, constrictions on that to some extent, which are you know well established in in Canada and our our Canada Evidence Act. Uh, but in terms of of theatrical representation, uh, you know the other core difference is that. A terrorist attack is the use of violence to amplify a message. The notion is that, uh, for example, rioting is louder than protesting, and firebombing is louder than rioting, and bombing is louder than firebombing, and murder is louder than blowing up a building. And that's a, a typical progression that you see certainly in Western domestic terrorist groups, is, is quite specifically that progression in order of, of degrees of violence that are engaged in. Of course, the trial is not violent. Right. The, the message is, you know, the trial is not using violence as a form of amplification. Uh, there is, you know, somebody is in jail, right? Somebody is imprisoned. Somebody is brought in by guards, right? But, you know, this is this is this is not an act of violence. This is. It's not an act of physical violence in, in the terrorism sense of the term, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I would argue that it's not an act of violence at all. I'm quite specific in terms of what I use the word violence to mean, and I've certainly dealt with, with theoreticians who would argue that you know, any sort of you know, constraint on your behavior is some sort of violence, yeah. but I think that does the term a misuse. Broken Mirrors Strategic surprise is a constant in history, and it is likely to remain so. The current method of divining truth is called big data. For a variety of reasons, this expensive and intrusive machine will not prevent the next major crisis caused by strategic surprise. The next shock may come from another massive terrorist attack, or an economic collapse caused by a cyber attack or a cascading failure. But it will occur, and the best plan still is to develop a cause for disaster.
Worse still, despite 12 years of spending and reorganizing after 9-11, many still believe that we can prevail in the face of terrorism with guns and bombs. This problem is exemplified by the fascination with drones, which carry out kinetic operations at the tactical and operational level. Despite all the discussion around whether drones are effective or not, the question is rarely asked as to whether they're even relevant or operating in the right battle space. Our terrorist opponents are operating primarily in the non-bounded strategic battle space of ideas and political messaging. We, on the other hand, are operating in a bounded physical battle space at the tactical and operational level. We can neither win nor prevail if we willingly choose to fight the wrong war in the wrong battle space. As Isabel Divestain noted earlier in the podcast, we are quite good at tactical disruption of our enemy instead of generating strategic effect. Commissions of inquiry into various perceived intelligence failures are themselves a form of political theater to apportion blame and rebuild confidence in the oracles. Reading the subtext, however, it is clear that many so-called intelligence failures were not real. Rather, they were failures of policy or the unwillingness or inability of the political class to accept or anticipate massive changes. We are currently in an era of transition on multiple levels, social, technical, financial, political, etc. Change causes friction, friction causes heat, and heat can cause fires. Stand by for the next major shock. Strategic intelligence analysis is now operating in an international environment that lacks a coherent organizational narrative, and the international system has no organizing principles such as it did during the Cold War or under a unipolar system. The elite classes in the political, military, and financial spheres of the, of the developed nations are incapable of developing long-range or strategic plans. In this period of time marked by transition, and without any organizing principles from our leadership, we should expect a series of surprises at the strategic level. Hopefully, our frontline first responders and citizens have the ability to absorb disaster, and they have a tolerance for the fallout from these disasters. Broken Mirrors We're back at A&M Confectionery. Mark and Tom are wrapping up the latest Broken Mirrors episode with Abby. So guys, we're at the end of another episode. Mark, how would you wrap it all up? You know, Abby, we play a great game of hockey. The problem is that they aren't, and we really need to think about how we can use our skates, and more importantly sticks, effectively in soccer. What it really comes down to is a question of getting our collective acts together in terms of narratives, and that, ultimately, comes down to a combination of our political leaders, intelligence experts, and citizenry working together to create a shared vision. As Ursula Le Guin noted, we have a series of oracles who speak of the future. Gods, spirits, and computers. Now we are consulting a new oracle, and this one is called Big Data. It will sit in billion-dollar shrines, such as the ones being built in Utah and Ottawa, for these wonderful gateways for the future. These oracles, which are already under attack by the likes of Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald, are no more likely to divine the truth than the guts of some poor domestic animal back in the days of Alexander the Great. Strategic surprise will likely remain a constant, and strategic illiteracy will remain as long as it is the sole province of ideologues. We should remember the words of Richard Betts, 
The best way to be prepared for dealing with intelligence mistakes and decision-making errors is to develop a tolerance for disaster. Perhaps we should remember the Latin phrase, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. This sums it up best. Okay, now I'm getting really depressed. Tom, have you got any idea where we go from here? In our next podcast, we'll continue our look into strategic intelligence. Specifically, we really want to look at what intelligence is, what it can do, and what every citizen should know about how it operates. You know, Abby, in this podcast, we kept with the theme of terrorism and its relationship with strategic intelligence. As Tom said, our next look is more of a dummy's guide to intelligence. We want to get people thinking for themselves, asking intelligent questions of our political leaders, and taking up their responsibility to help forge a new strategic vision. Alrighty, well at this point, we'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas, and remember, do not drink and drive or operate machinery such as heavy machine guns while under the influence. And at all times, remember, there's a reason junior officers are not issued live ammunition. From all of us to all of you. We'd like to wish you a happy holidays. Broken Mirrors This has been Broken Mirrors, Episode 4. Strategic Intelligence for December 2013. A podcast covering issues in the intelligence, security, and military communities. For much more information about this episode and the series, please visit brokenmirrors.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, and listen to the extended material. Follow us on Google Plus and Facebook, and if you've enjoyed the episode, please remember to plus one and like us there. The Descent and Dangerous are compositions generously provided by Kevin McLeod through Incompetech.com. Our thanks to our guests, Stephen Strang of the RCMP and Isabel Diveston of Leiden University. This episode of Broken Mirrors was written and presented by our host and executive producer, Mark Turrell, and our co-host, Tom Quiggin. Producer, Tim Riley. Intern producer, Abby Baruch and associate producer, Stephanie Bach, who is also responsible for elevating the general tone with her artwork. This podcast is copyright 2013 Broken Mirror Studios and is released under Creative Commons. Attribution, non-commercial, no derivative works, 2.5 Canada license. For Broken Mirrors, I'm Jackie Benjamin. Mm-hmm.